This episode is brought to you by BitMEX, the OG crypto exchange that is back and better than ever. You'll hear more about BitMEX later in the show. We've never seen crypto in a recession and in a global ma macro downturn. I mean, go back and listen to that episode. Chow absolutely nails it. And he says, what you could be seeing is not this like 18 month bear market. You could be looking at a four or a five or a six year bear market. And that in my mind would be the worst thing to ever happen to crypto. everyone quick reminder nothing said on empire is a recommendation to buy or sell securities or tokens this podcast is for informational purposes only and any views expressed by anyone on the show are solely our opinions not financial advice santiago and i and our guests may hold positions in the companies funds or projects discussed now let's get into the show all right all right all right all right through the bear market we persist we have another episode of Empire, another weekly roundup. It is our duty to bring you the facts, cut through the rumors, cut through the speculation, uh, and hopefully cheer you up through the uh, 20K Bitcoin and 1K ETH that we are seeing today. So Santi, how we doing, my friend? GM, Jason, doing great. How are you? Good, good, good. You like my new digs? Uh, we got a new office actually in Manhattan. Oh, that's insane. Yeah. That's great. Yeah, yeah. It's really We're cool. uh, slowly but surely setting up the podcast studio here. So any uh, any New Yorkers come through? Uh, I'll be in New York uh, in August. So, you know. Oh, yeah? Have to swing by. There you go. What's uh, what's happening in, in New York in August? I just want to see your face in real life. There you go. There you go. You uh, <laughs> you skipped the smart move, skipping the NFT NYC mania. Here's where we're at right now, Santi. Bitcoin and ETH dropped below 20K and 1K last Saturday. Um, when we're recording this, I think Bitcoin's around like 21K. ETH's at like 1.1. ETH has fallen below the market cap of Wells Fargo, which was, uh, I shed a little tear for that one. Coinbase is trading around a $12 billion market cap, down 80%. UK just printed this massive inflation print of 9%, which is a 40-year high. Powell told Congress on Wednesday that the Fed is strongly committed on inflation, notes that the recession is a possibility, and that, this, and that a soft landing is going to be difficult with events unfolding across the world, war in Ukraine, Russia, China, um, having some difficulties right now, famine impending. How are you feeling today? You know, I'm feeling, um, I'm feeling very much alive. Like your senses get heightened, at least mine, um, during this environment. Um, you obviously do a lot of reflection of things you could have done better, things that you didn't miss, things that you missed things that you have done right and, and not so right. Um, it's a time of reflection. I, like you always reflect as an investor, but you're also looking forward. Um, I think there's a lot of things to be excited about. And I know people always criticize me because I'm always excited and optimistic. And an optimist, I love technology. So it's hard for me not to be excited about crypto. And now there's a lot of reasons to be excited, but there's also a lot of reasons to, it's like that scene in the big short, right? Where, you know, unemployment, like the guys are like celebrating and Brad Pitt, who plays a great role, says, sobers them down and says, hey, listen, guys, for every 1% of unemployment, X amount of people die. And and I think, you know, there's pain out there for sure, not just in crypto. And I think that that's the only thing that's kind of weighing down on me. But I always feel like technology is what makes the world better. And, and I do believe that we're investing in the most exciting, one of the most exciting sectors of technology, one of which I'm recording tomorrow, which is applying crypto incentives to fix a lot of problems in healthcare. And I think that's what's exciting about all this stuff. So, yeah, yeah, makes sense. Uh, by the way, I won't be on that episode with you. Um, the healthcare episode. I am 
I feel like the crypto and like blockchain for healthcare is one of the things that you hear when you get into the space and it's like very overused, very overhyped. And it's mm -hmm. one of those things that people, it's almost the cl cliche, like apply blockchain to everything. It's like blockchain for supply chains, blockchain for healthcare. So I'm excited for you to ask this guy the hard questions and to figure out mm -hmm. why this actually matters. But are there, you talk about reflections, are there any um, reflections that you've had that, that have anything that's become like abundantly clear to you now that you've had a little more time to settle in or, or any assumptions that you've questioned that you're, that you're almost rethinking or, or you're not at that stage yet. I'll, I'll just highlight one that I didn't mention in the prior episode, which is this notion that DeFi and your, you have the impression that this is a transparent system, but the thing that you sometimes, at least for me, that I've been thinking more about is you don't have a, it's more transparent, but you don't have a, as clear of a picture. Most importantly, in this case, um, is the three arrow situation, which you see a lot of the on-chain activity. You understand how these protocols work, but what's a little bit behind the scenes is the level of connectivity that a lot of players in the space have with each other and how these things can very quickly kind of unwind in a very unorganized manner. Um, and also the level of activity that happens um, behind the scenes is something that, you know, I don't know how, I, like, I guess, like, in these information networks and flows, like, you, you want to perhaps, like, said differently, more people come out now and say, oh, I knew about that. I knew that Doe was doing X. I knew that three hours guys were doing Y. I knew that Celsius was doing Z. And so I'm left wondering, like, if true, then as an industry, then perhaps it's like we should do more self-policing, right? I've always said that the biggest risk is self-sabotage. And now it's sort of like too little, too late, guys. Like if you knew that there was, perhaps you could have been a little bit more to the people that knew, then I'm left wondering like, why wasn't it brought to light earlier? And what we could have done as an industry to kind of mitigate what is not like too big to fail. I don't think three hours is too big to fail. Again, DeFi absorbs and works and doesn't need to get bailed out for the most part. So, but uh, yeah, that, that's the only thing that I've been like questioning a lot of my assumptions because I, you always hear me talk about this is a very transparent system, much more, much better than traditional finance, but it's not perfectly transparent. And there's still a lot of risks that are lurking behind the scenes or risks that we don't understand um, because with composability, there's challenges there, even though there's a lot of really nice things about it. Yeah, yeah. Here's some... Uh... Here's some reflections that I've had and just have been thinking about. Um, one is that crypto is anti-fragile. I think we're at the place where crypto is anti-fragile. Every project, except for Bitcoin and ETH, is fragile, right? So the industry as a whole is, is anti-fragile. I think every single project and every company and every token is still very fragile. And that's, that's this, the past couple of weeks have really shown me that. Um, I think bigger industry equals more funding equals bigger consequences, right? We haven't seen the, the, the amount of money that we're talking about here. I, I still haven't figured out three arrows is exact amount of how big they were. 18 billion, it sounds like, um, has been tossed around. UST at its peak was 19 billion. Luna was like 40 billion. These are numbers that are the size of like Lehman and Enron and Bear Stearns, right? So like the consequences now are just so, so, so big. Um, another thing is probably we should always support founders and investors who push the edge of innovation. Uh, everything in crypto is just a dream at one point, right? But when a founder or an investor becomes aggressive 
at any sort of pushback about their project or, or at their investments, it's probably a good time to be cautious. Um, and, and on that note, I think it's just important not to punish people who call out risks in the systems. Uh, oftentimes in bull market, you end up, the people who call out risk get punished, right? They get almost, they get hammered on Twitter and it creates this incentive system not to actually call out risks in the system. And I think we need to do a better job at, at accepting folks who call out the risks. Um, and, and the last thing that's just become abundantly clear to me, and I'm sure there will be more things, is the mo there's, there's, there's one thing that matters in the bear market. It's surviving, right? Do whatever it takes to survive. And, and with that, I think it's, it's maybe a good transition into, into talking about the markets and, and talking about what's happening this week and revisit some things that, that we talked about last week. And so here's what I'd like to do with this. And, and you tell me if you want to go somewhere else. I want to revisit what we talked about last week. Three arrows, Celsius, and a brief comment on Steeth, right? Just quick updates on where those things are at. And then I want to get into some of the contagion. So how does that sound to you? Yeah, that's great. Three arrows. Um, I think we were too sympathetic on three arrows last week, actually. Uh, I think I was pretty sim sympathetic. I think you were pretty sympathetic. I was you know, very hopeful that they get through it. I'm still hopeful that they get through it. But what's come out in the last several days is that they were taking portfolio company money, uh, some of their portfolio companies, and just honestly, most companies in crypto, a lot of companies in crypto were giving three arrows their money. Uh, and even funds. I heard about funds who would, who would raise in USDC and they wanted to earn 8% on that USDC. So they were giving it to three arrows. And three arrows is basically just ghosted everybody, it seems like. Um, and when you're taking, when you're investing in companies, those companies are giving you their capital back to earn interest on it. And then you don't give those those companies their money back. Like that is, uh, I don't have much sympathy for that. And so... I don't know, I know it's the system, right? Everyone gave them money for the interest. They used that money to make big bets. In return, Three Arrows would give them 8% on their 8% APY. Mm -hmm. Three Arrows, their bets go belly up. Everyone who gave them the money doesn't get their money back. I know that's the system. I know that's the model. But mm -hmm. I got to say, every from everything that's uh, unfolded over the last couple of weeks, I think, or last couple of days, I think I have a little less sympathy. But you tell me if I'm being too hard here. No, look, I mean, I think um, you're right. Uh, I, I wasn't aware of a lot of these practices and as they come to light, then you change your perception, right? I think in the first episode, we were operating under a lot of rumors. Um, you know, one thing is, at least from my vantage point, a lot of people ask me, how much do you know? Like, how, how close were you with these guys? I'm like, actually, probably the least out of any other investor out there, especially remarkable considering how big they were. They had some connectivity to some portfolio companies, um, but it was always, I, I never really interacted much other than Zoo reaching out occasionally on Twitter, DMing me and like, what do you think about the market here? And that was really it. Um, and so you're right. I look at me and I think it's, I look at that and it, it, a lot of founders have come out and said that and it, it, it sucks. Um, yeah. And, um, you know, I don't think we've seen the full extent of the, the damage that and the kind of exposure it seems like a lot of folks had pretty much anyone that is was big in crypto had some exposure to that meaning service providers like lenders uh voyager a lot of these we'll talk about in the episode but like voyager and uh and blockfi and genesis and like a lot of people in, in like deribit um and so yeah i mean it, it almost feels like i would characterize terra like the demise of terra was like I think like three hours is like long-term capital management. And I think it's funny because not funny because we hinted at this in the Terra when we recorded the episode of Terra 
when it was going down. Um, and so it's a Lehman and long-term capital management, I think are the two analogies that I'll make here. And it's, um, yeah, it's pretty wild. Uh, yeah. a lot of these things that have come to light. Um, co-founder Kyle Davies or Davis, uh, told the wall street journal on Friday that the firm has hired legal and financial advisors to help work out a solution, uh, for both their lenders and their investors. So as that story unfolds, we'll keep you guys posted on that. Um, Celsius, not too much of an update here. They've actually started repaying a decent bit of their loans. Um, $10 million repayment to compound finance on Monday. Uh, they paid another 54 million and die to, uh, their vault with Oasis protocol last week. Their token actually popped like five or 10 X, uh, on, I think it's probably due to a short squeeze. Um, but also maybe due to a little bit of news on the repayment, uh, on their repayment positions. I think they're still in a precarious position. They seem to kind of be ghosting most of the industry, but, uh, you know, I think they're kind of cranking behind the scenes. Seems like they're in a precarious position. We don't really know their full on-chain and off-chain positions. So there's not too much of an update on Celsius, except that uh, it seems like SBF and FTX probably won't come in to uh, bail them out. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, I think yeah, it seems like they're working hard to, to, to get the money back to their customers behind yeah. the scenes. Yeah, definitely. Um, Steeth, quick update on Steeth. And then I want to get into some of this contagion because that's where I think the interesting stuff lies. Steeth is trading at still around 95 uh, cents on the dollar. Uh, and then the discount on Grayscale, BTC, and ETH products are at their largest discount ever, around 30%. So just keep going to today. Today, I think it had one of the highest volume days. Um, and it has narrowed a bit to negative uh, 27. Uh, on the Grayscale so discount? Okay. The d- Grayscale discount. But so, I mean, Big yeah. Um, all right. Let's talk about contagion, uh, specifically contagion into CFI. One of my talking about reflections and learnings. One of my biggest takeaways so far has been a lot of the contagion uh, has been actually in CFI, right? Not in DeFi. You look at it like Compound and Aave. They seem to be doing completely fine, which goes to show the power of some of these transparent, fully on-chain systems. But you look at some of these CFI folks and they're struggling. So the first one I want to call out is Voyager. Voyager, for those who don't know, is a CeFi platform, uh, trading platform, just an investment platform, retail app. They do lending, borrowing. Uh, they provide users with like 8% interest. It was it came out this week that Voyager, they're also a publicly traded company, um, which is I think is important to note, note. They trade under the ticker VYGVF. Voyager reported around $2 billion of loan exposure across seven different counterparties this week. One of those counterparties was Three Arrows. They had about uh, a $600 billion loan out to Three Arrows. Um, That it seems like Three Arrows is uh, failing and Three Arrows is failing to repay the loan, right? It's, I think, over 15,000 Bitcoin. They had lent out to Three Arrows about $350 million in USD, uh, USDC. And uh, failure to repay that loan by June, 26, uh, June 27th constitutes uh, a default, right? Voyager stock dropped 50% after the announcement. Um, so I'll just pause, so I'll, I'll pause there. I think what we're starting to see is, uh, and we'll get to BlockFi in a second as well, another per, uh, company that uh, maybe had some, some contagion from this, but it's really interesting to see some of these smaller, maybe retail apps like a Voyager really struggling from, from some of this fallout to three, to, from, uh, from 3AC. Yeah, I mean, I think the across the board is is not proper risk management. Um, uh, like you know, uh, again, what we discussed in the last episode was issues that really get you into trouble is a mismatch of assets and liabilities. Uh, we're also taking too much risk, and people not understanding that. 
Which brings me to one of the perhaps most interesting observations that I've had that I'm seeing this week is the the yields in DeFi are lower than treasuries and bonds, but particularly treasuries. And it's it's kind of crazy to see that. Um, you know, said differently, like there's no reason why you'd want to hold cash stable coins in most DeFi protocols that are paying you less than the 10 year treasury. Now there's a couple of reasons why that is, but on, on, on at a very high level, there's more risk in DeFi than a tre- treasury, right? Uh, and, and so, uh, at least today. And so the risk should always, the yield should always be higher. Now, wh- wh- why isn't it? I think there's a couple of theories. One of course is duration. Like, uh, you know, you could, these, these yields, uh, I, I guess like the, the most, Clear explanation I have is a lot of people are sitting on stables. There is a lot of supply of stables in these money markets like Aave and Compound. And so based on how the, the yields are priced, like if p- most people are sitting on stables, then you're not going to get paid much on that. But they haven't taken the money out of the system waiting to kind of buy back at some point, um, which is interesting, right? Um, in the prior cycle, you didn't have this phenomenon like stable coins now encompass more than 20% of the entire crypto market cap that's pretty high and so you know i think there's still a lot of funds out there that de-risk sufficiently uh have now realized that but they're patient they haven't kind of bought back into the market and they're just kind of parking these stables in in some of the DeFi 1.0 protocols and, and will bid at some point but not yet and so that's something that i'm closely monitoring um like these DeFi yields uh, of, of simple deposits like there's certainly vaults out there that might earn you a little bit more but even your vaults are pretty that are taking much more risk uh, or, or um, relatively more risk um, are not paying you that much. Yeah. How bad is that for DeFi? Like, what is the secondary impact of the fact that, you know, DeFi you used to come into DeFi because you could get these crazy interest rates. Mm-hmm. What happens when the interest rates in traditional capital markets are actually higher than DeFi? I think it's a really good question because a lot of the criticism that I've heard from people over time is, the only reason why you want to use DeFi is because it's interest arb and you get paid crazy amounts of APY to take on crazy risk. And it's a lot of speculation. And like I sympathize with that for you. I think, I think look, it, it, it would be dumb to not take it, factor that in. There's a, a subset of, there's a part of the reason why DeFi is compelling is that you can historically earn, you know, a pretty interesting, a pretty attractive rate um, with stable coins. But that doesn't obliviate the need for DeFi. Like meaning, like even if yields were much lower, and I've said this historically, DeFi is pretty interesting because you're just doing things much faster. Um, like in the sense that, you know, when you want to buy a house, you can use your, like the, the idea of you taking out a loan within seconds without any exchange of information other than the one that you've already provided to your, uh, exchange or whenever you're doing the offboarding um, from crypto to fiat is pretty remarkable. And so you're removing a lot of the costs that historically have been like traditionally existent in the normal flow of getting a loan. And so some of those cost savings like are pretty interesting. Like that flow, that, that efficiency gain makes DeFi very compelling. So m- the point I'm trying to make is like DeFi it doesn't live and die on 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 rates on on yields being much higher it just works faster better cheaper um a lot of those three components 
are in different points, right? Uh, relative to your existing solutions. Like we're not at a point, like there's still some friction, there's still some challenges for a lot of people to use crypto. I understand that. But over time, crypto ultimately, DeFi becomes kind of the operating standard, the rails for finance, where JP Morgan, Goldman, banks just use it to transact. It's like, uh, and so like, that's just where we're going. Empire is brought to you by BitMEX. With the launch of their spot exchange, BitMEX is running an insane promo right now. We wanted to give you the inside scoop. Here's the deal. For the next two months, users who trade $250 worth of crypto on BitMEX's spot exchange will be entered into their million dollar giveaway. Prizes range from thousands of dollars all the way up to $500,000. That's right. Trade 250 bucks on BitMEX for a chance to personally win $500,000. Beyond the million dollar giveaway, new users can also get up to 200 BMEX, B-M-E-X, that's BitMEX's new token coming soon, just by creating an account and going through KYC and trading. So you can actually get BitMEX tokens just by creating an account and trading. The more you trade, the higher your chances of winning, what are you waiting for? Go to bitmex.com today, sign up for an account, bitmex.com. Let me ask you this, Santi, does this change? So here's what, here's how I always thought this space would play out. You've got these DeFi as the back end. then you basically had these CFI providers who sat on top of DeFi. The user had no idea they were actually interacting with DeFi in the same way that the user doesn't really understand that they're operating with like SMTP when they use Gmail, right? Does this shift your mindset? Does this seeing the contagion that we see with like BlockFi and Celsius and uh, Voyager and all these CeFi platforms, does that shift how you, and, but the DeFi platforms, the compounds, the Aves, et cetera, are doing actually quite well right now. Does that shift how you view how this entire space plays out? On the margin, yeah. I think there's, as you said earlier, I think there's a subset of participants that were playing this interest rate R and capturing that yield and yield farming strategies. Uh, a lot of what you're seeing now is uh, this recursive leverage that existed in DeFi is, is largely unwinding pretty quickly. Um, three arrows going down Celsius. Um, a lot of that was this recursive leverage on chain and that is being completely wiped now. And in many ways, I think historically, a lot of the vanity metrics in this space has been TVL, total value lock, which is the amount of money that is deposited in a particular protocol. And I think it's just uh, the equivalent of eyeballs uh, for the internet in the, before the dot-com crash. Like it, it's kind of an irrelevant metric in many ways. Um, and so, yeah, I do think it impacts um, at least like, I think a lot of people pointed at TVL and said, wow, DeFi is working. Look at that. It's massive. Like look at TVL growth. And it, now you're, you're kind of going backwards and saying, what is actually the true metrics that matter? Is it users? Is it number of applications? Uh, like, what is the more important metric for DeFi? Uh, is it the, the, the time saved uh, of, of getting a loan? Um, you know, and so in many ways, it, it's, it's good in the sense that it forces us to be focusing on both protocols, investors, users on, you know, why are you actually using this technology versus you know, some other narrative or reason that may not be as important or matter in the long term. And, uh, you know, ultimately that's kind of 
how I look yeah. at it. It's it's net positive um, that we're that we're reshifting our focus to what is a truly value driver of DeFi. And of course, like we can talk about that all day long because more recently I've heard a lot of people be put in a question, a lot of investors in, in the space, say, like, why, like, just give me like some really good use cases for this technology. And you know, Mark Andreessen took a stab at it um, uh, and other folks have taken, taken a stab at it, some more convincing than others. But, you know, now is a time where a lot of traditional VCs and other people, commentators, are putting us or trying to box us in and saying, like, all right, guys, enough of this Ponzi-nomics, enough of this casino. What are you actually building here? It's a fair question, right? And I think one that a lot of people need to reflect on, builders, investors, users. Um, but I, I, again, in short, I continue to believe there are very compelling reasons why this technology is going to take over many, not all, or replace everything. But very concretely, like there are reasons why you wanna you wanna use this technology, and it's almost like difficult for me to envision a world in ten years that doesn't operate on crypto rails or uses a lot of this technology, or creators use NFTs to interact with their audience. Like it's difficult for me to envision that, and maybe that's going to be my biggest pitfall here, because I'm too kind of like immersed in this that I don't contemplate the reasons why this would totally fail which is possible but i don't think it's about i don't think it's about envisioning if this would completely fail like i don't think i don't think it's even worth having that conversation because i don't i just that doesn't feel possible to me once new technology is out of the bag it becomes impossible to put it back in the bag the more important question in my mind is how long does this bear market last and that actually really i know it's not about prices but it really is about prices it really is an important thing because prices drive yeah. adoption. And Absolutely. I remember Chow, Chow came on the episode, remember like uh, September, October, November of last year, everyone's talking about actually Suzu uh, was like pushing the super cycle and like, is this the super cycle? And Chow came on the episode and he's like, look, everyone's so focused on the super cycle. What we might not be thinking about right now is the first ever prolonged bear market. And mm-hmm. to, to Chow's point from, you know, from Alliance Dow, he, he absolutely nailed this. He said, look, if we, if the, if the global markets shift, we've never seen crypto in a recession and mm-hmm. in a global ma- macro downturn. I mean, go back and listen to that episode. Chow absolutely nails it. And he says, what you could be seeing is not this like 18 month bear market. You could be looking at a four or a five or a six year bear market. And that in my mind would be the worst thing to ever happen to crypto. Yeah, yeah. I, 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 I agree with Chow and his assessment, which is why I'm on the fence and cautious right now uh, on deploying um, because yeah. um, it, it feels feels like you don't want to be front-running the Fed. Um, there's no reason to. You're not getting paid enough on the risk, uh, like the symmetry, like the risk reward, I think is, is totally lopsided. And right now, you know, if the Fed at some point backs down and the market stabilizes, you're going to have plenty of time to scale in the things that you like so i'm you know there's there's kind of i, I don't see any particular reason to um to scale in in size yet yeah um but yeah like um let me ask you a question like you are more from your clients to get an interact with people that perhaps are on the fence about crypto but want to learn about it and they subscribe and they you know turn to you for quality insights and information and news like you, 
what did you see in 2018 and perhaps what are you seeing now in terms of the interest um, of corporations, other investors, people that are not in crypto? Like, I'm curious, does that grow because of negative news and bear markets? Like what happens in bear markets? Like are people like more interested to read about this stuff or less interested from an engagement standpoint? Yeah, I mean, we have a crazy amount of data on like where the interest comes from and and, and times here, here's what here's what really happens in times of volatility interest spikes so volatility mm. to the upside or volatility to the downside or in bull markets so every bull market there's a massive amount of interest uh both in like media companies and information but also like new people are signing up and things like that there's also a massive amount of interest when there's volatility to the downside the time that folks when things really quiet down is what I mentioned in that big Twitter thread I did stage three, when there's no volatility and there's just price consolidation and there's not this three arrows news and like there's not the lenders facing insolvencies when it's just boring, right? That's when the information, that's when that's when people really lose interest in the space. So let's, um, I wanna, I wanna get back to some of the stuff. One thing I wanna get your take on. So the other lender that was uh, had some issues though they, uh, I mean, they seem to be coming through it just fine. Also, just full transparency, one of my favorite companies in the space is is BlockFi, right? Like they are, there are rumors that they were facing some liquidity issues, had some issues recouping all their loans. Maybe one of their large loans was was through Three Arrows. I think they someone said they had to liquidate their loan to to, uh, to Three Arrows that went through. They reduced staff by 20%. They were rumored to be raising a down round. I'm not sure if that actually went through. Mm -hmm. On Tuesday announced that they locked in a $250 million revolving line of credit from FTX. Uh, one thing we didn't mention is uh, Voyager also secured a $500 million loan from Alameda. Um, uh, Al Voyager was already an Alameda portfolio company just before the line of credit announcement. It was announced that Alameda had acquired an additional 14.9 million shares of Voyager, which increases their total ownership to 11.5%, right? So mm -hmm. now uh, SBF's trading firm, Alameda, owns 11.5% of Voyager. They've got this $250 million revolving line of credit from uh, to BlockFi. What are your, what's your thought on SBF coming in and, and scooping, basically scooping up all these, uh, you know, lend and borrow platforms? I think SBF at some point acquires well, some of these, if not all, um, like I wouldn't be surprised if FTX acquires BlockFi uh, at some point, uh, or or some of these other assets. Um, he's in a position of strength; he can do that. The criticisms I've heard, and I don't have a, I'm kind of impartial here or neutral, is should he be bailing them out? But like Sam is smart, <laughs> I think uh, this is not your government bailout. Of a bear of a financial institution, this is uh, someone that probably has a very clear agenda of what he wants to potentially have option value to, you know, acquire these assets, and so uh, he's been very public about he wants to be the biggest, most important uh, company in crypto, and so does this put him in a position to at some point have more clarity and visibility into their balance sheet and and you know make an acquisition at some point probably, and so I wouldn't be surprised if at some point this happens. Like, I'm not like 100% sure of this. I don't have, I haven't looked at the numbers or I have incited yeah. books, but I do think a lot of these players, you may be giving them too much credit here, but I do think that they're in perhaps a more precarious position that you may think. Like, low risk management has been pretty bad for these organizations, underwriting a lot of risk, especially on this grayscale trade. Um, 
And second, as it's straight down to a discount. And second of that, like I was looking I back to rates, on-chain rates, the, the spread between DeFi and CeFi rates is telling, right? Because BlockFi and Celsius are still somehow telling you that they're going to give you like 6% on ETH, Bitcoin and stables. And like, I'm just wondering, like, where's that coming from? Like, yeah. I, yeah. That's, that's just not sustainable. That's coming from VC. That's being subsidized by VCs. In the case of BlockFi, in the case of Celsius, they were taking crazy risk um, in yield farming. And so, again, uh, that that's just not sustainable. And so that's just a lot of cash that's being burned. Yeah. No, I mean, don't get it twisted. Every lender in crypto, lenders have been hit the hardest. CFI lenders have been hit the hardest. Every single lender was either insolvent or nearly insolvent over the last two weeks. Every single one. Um, and here's my take. Sam, SBF, FTX, Alameda, they are crypto's white knight right now. They are absolute heroes. They're the goats of this bear market so far. They are completely saving the day, right? This is, I know you know people in crypto love the free markets, let the bad companies die. This, this would be catastrophic risk to the system if these lenders went under. Um, these mm. lenders have millions and millions and millions of users, right? This would be the final you know, straw that broke the camel's back for regulators if these folks did go under. SBF is completely saving the day. This is Buffett in 2011 with Bank of America, right? B of A in 2008 was at the epicenter of the financial crisis. Uh, their stock dropped to like two bucks, if you remember. People questioned whether the company could avoid bankruptcy. Did they need to get nationalized, people were saying. And they actually pulled out of the financial crisis, but then the Eurozone debt crisis happened in 2011, got, you know, tanked the company all the way back down to like four or five bucks a share. And at the time, the CEO of Bank of America, Brian Moynihan, he was insisting that the bank had plenty of capital, that they didn't need any help. Uh, but sure enough, uh, they needed to, they ended up taking uh, Berkshire's money, right? And Buffett's money, uh, boosted investor sentiment, boosted the stock price, um, padded the bank's cash, cash position. Um, and I think he put in like $5 billion in, uh, got like $5 billion of preferred Bank of America stock redeemable at a 5% premium that paid a 5% annual dividend. Um, and I think he also got like 700 million warrants um, uh, to buy or warrants to buy 700 million shares of Bank of America common stock, right? At seven bucks anytime in the next 10 years. This is like one of the trades of the decade by Buffett. And um, I think that's what's happening with SBF right now. Folk, people will look back in three years and be like, you remember that time in June of 2022 when he came in, saved all the lenders and scooped up the entire space. So, and I think he's, I think it's amazing what he's doing. I mean, We'll see if it's, I think it'll be a really smart financial system, uh, move. And I think it'll be, I think it's completely saving the industry right now. Yeah. I think the last note on CFI, and then let's move into some of that Solon stuff, because I think it's pretty yeah. interesting in Bancor is, uh, traditional capital markets is basically, uh, a cascading chain of money moving from one person to another, adding or taking away small bits of interest. Right, so that the and what what ended up happening that frustrated so many folks is that when you get to the end user, when I've got my Wells Fargo account, I'm left with zero interest. We've recreated that system in a way in crypto. Right, what ended up happening is the user puts in money to to uh, to Celsius. Celsius gives that money to Three Arrows. Three Arrows puts that money then into a DeFi platform. The DeFi platform is liquidity farming to drop. Right, and you've got this 
you, so we've, we've, we've recreated a very similar uh, system and I think it's just very important to understand if folks have capital deployed right now, really, really, really think about where that yield uh, and it's offering yield, really, really, really think about where that yield is coming from. Let's talk governance. Let's talk centralization in DeFi. Um, uh, Solend, let's talk about Solend first. Solend is a lend and borrow protocol on Solana. They've got about 250 mil of TVL. They had about a billion of TVL at their peak. What happened this week, and I don't fully know the situation too well, but so correct me if I'm wrong. You had uh, a whale on Solend who had deposited Sol, borrowed USDC and USDT, uh, and they, that, that position was converging upon, uh, upon a partial liquidation after Solana's price crashed. The whale had, uh, I think, had about 100 million of stables against 170 million worth of Sol, which represented 95% of Solend's Solana deposits. 95% of uh, Solana's deposits, 88% of USDC borrows. Users began to pull out their, their stables, their USDC, USDT, drove the utilization up to 100%, meaning a bunch of users couldn't withdraw funds. Solana's price kept dropping to like 20 bucks. The whale's account, uh, and the whale's account could have been liquidated. So there was a vote, right? On Sunday, the developers spun up this emergency DAO, submitted their first governance proposal uh, to basically say that they wanted to partially liquidate the whale's account, whose collateral was at risk of liquidation by kind of approximating some percentage. And 97% of the voters voted yes, right? But over 90% of the votes came from this one anonymous whale account. Um, so yeah, there was this like massive community backlash. The team held and passed another quick vote on Monday morning to invalidate the previous vote. They changed the voting time from six hours, which they said was too quick, to 24 hours. Um, what are your thoughts on, uh, on this whole Solon debacle, man? Uh, it's pretty crazy. Um, yeah. yeah. Obviously, I mean, that's not decentralized in any way, shape or form. Um, you know, yeah, I understand why they kind of the rationale to do it. Like, I, I think like you couldn't absorb that liquidation. But uh, yeah, obviously a lot to learn from, which is should a couple of questions is should there be a one of a one to one vote, uh, like wait to vote or should there be more kind of like mechanisms like quadratic voting or some other type of voting mechanism that kind of ameliorates this, this concentration among certain large holders. Um, should the team be voting? Should there be delegation rights and powers and how do you prevent a lot of these governance attacks, right? Um, this can happen also in, in, in a bull market. You know what I mean? Like, it's pretty wild. Like, I mean, do you feel then comfortable putting your money in a platform that can essentially seize your assets? Like, I'm sorry, I'd rather keep my bank at JP, like, rather keep my money at JP Morgan. Um, and so, yeah, I, I think there's a lot to learn about um, really just going back to the drawing board and saying, what is actually DeFi and what is not DeFi? Right. And and that this to me feels like we were talking about this earlier in a prior episode, which is how do you, where do you draw a line between DeFi and not DeFi and, and do you regulate? Some like Celsius or something like Aave, there's a big distinction between those two. And the biggest distinction is the upgradability of contracts and how you can upgrade a contract and what you can actually do to upgrade a contract. And what are the parameters that that contract allows whoever is the operator or the team behind the project, they should never be able to like do this stuff. You know, like they, they, they shouldn't, uh, no matter what 
it should always be kind of a hard line. I don't know if you disagree here, but to me, this feels like- No, 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 I think, I mean, I think it draws, the the big question that comes to my mind is, does the app layer or the base layer need to be decentralized, right? After what's happened with um, like Bancor this week and what happened with Solend, and we saw the Juno whale, right? Like a month ago, the community voted to take back a hundred million worth of tokens that the whale had basically gamed from these airdrops. You kind of start seeing that a lot of these quote unquote DeFi platforms aren't actually as decentralized as you may have thought. So it just makes me think like, should these DeFi apps, should they just be honest and say that they're centralized um, and you let the base layer be decentralized? Um, but maybe it's like we went a little too far on the decentralization. Or maybe this is just me being in a bear market, doing what you always do in a bear market, saying uh, you need to go back to centralization, right? Equity over tokens, companies over DAOs. That just might just be me. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I guess like out. The truth always is more, you are more articulate when money's on the line. So let me ask you a question. Would you deposit your money there now? No. Okay, there you go. No. Would you deposit your money in Aave or Compound? I would, I would and I do. Yeah, I I would, I would use the, I still, I still would use the blue chip DeFi. I, but but I still, I think of them, them as almost like protocols now instead of, plat, instead of apps. And that's probably the wrong way to look at it. But like, I, uh, They've just be or not maybe not protocols maybe that's the wrong way to put it but like utilities of the industry, they're, yeah, they're like yeah. the con they're like the con ed of uh, they're like the con ed or the PG and E of the industry. It's just like they provide a service that everybody uses. Uh, are they the sexiest thing in the world? No, but um, yeah, they're providing this utility. So yeah. So I'm gonna say the other two things to keep an eye on right now that I wish we could have gotten to. We won't get to them. We'll talk about them next week. Mm-hmm. Is keep an eye on Bitcoin miners right now. Um, usually what happens is price goes down, miners go offline, difficulty adjusts. Now, because they have access to credit, they can operate at a loss for for longer. The miners don't go offline. Difficulty stays where it was. So now those miners are losing money faster than they otherwise would have been. Um, and the lenders whose, uh, the collateral they have is, are these ASICs. They don't actually want to repo the ASICs. So anyways, that's one thing I want to talk about next week. And then I'm keeping an eye on, uh, DYDX. Um, decentralized exchange for perps. They announced that they're moving from Starkware uh, to over to their own Cosmos app chain, which is really, really interesting. Probably not a great look for L2s. So I want to talk about that next week. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the Uniswap Genie acquisition. Uh, Uniswap Labs yes. announced Tuesday it acquired NFT marketplace aggregator Genie. Um, so I want to start talking about like, what is your bet on aggregation protocols versus individual apps from like a value capture standpoint? So yeah. To the listener, I wish we could have gotten to all this this week, but the team will be mad at me if I don't uh, if I don't we'll, get we'll all this all a, hands on we'll time. We'll record an extra special one next week uh, just to make up for that. Exactly, exactly. So, Santi, it's always it's always a pleasure. Always a pleasure, guys. Uh, thanks for tuning in. If there's any feedback, please let us know. We're here to help you weather through the storm and uh, you know uh, offer insights from a lot of people i'm recording a really killer episode tomorrow and we'll be back next week as well so as always drop us a line or anything if you want us to cover anything in particular and we'll see you next time thanks for joining see you next week folks